Welcome back to The Deal, the blueprint for success in real estate and life. I'm Danny Brown, your host. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest, a legend in the real estate business, Steve Bram, a principal and co-founder of George Smith Partners. He and his team, they've ranged over $4 billion of financing and 200 high-end transactions, including bridge loans, construction loans, hotel loans, residential loans, uh, you know, all over the board. Some of the biggest most complex deals, but not only that, Steve is a mensch of mensch. He's just a big, big believer in giving back and philanthropy plays a huge part of who he is. He's authentic, he's hardworking, he's successful on every level and really on a personal level, he's really a sage, a sage of wisdom. So please enjoy the episode, School's in Session. Do us a favor, subscribe to our podcast at The Deal with Danny Brown at Apple or Spotify or Amazon, or Stitcher, wherever you consume your your content, and on YouTube. Uh, Our growth depends on you guys telling people you know and spreading the word through the real estate and business community. So we appreciate the support. You can always uh, check out the show notes for more details on me and my guests. Thank you. Enjoy the episode with Steve Bram. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Deal. I'm Danny Brown. Good to have everyone back after a long spring break. Today's guest, a living legend in my eyes, Steve Bram. Welcome to the show. How are you? Danny, it's great to be here. I've known you a long time. It's great to do this with you. I'm so excited to have you. You are, I've said, uh, the poster boy of uh, what I look at as success. You're a managing partner, managing director at George Smith. Uh, You've been in the financing game For a very long time, you've done tons, probably the most hotel deals, some very complex financing structural deals for portfolios and commercial buildings and apartments. You've done it all. uh, But more importantly, what you've done that is so impressive beyond your career is you've always carried yourself with such class and integrity. You've always given back to the community. You were a mentor of mine uh, for many years and you've given your time so freely to, to me and so many other people. So I am pumped to have you here. So we're going to get into the, the Steve Bram story. But before we jump into it, um, any anecdotes right now, any big, bigger, interesting deals that you can talk about before we get into your where you grew up story? And by the way, I'm pumped to be here because one of the joys of what I do is mentor uh, younger adults. And I remember... Danny, meeting with you when you were just getting into the real estate business and trying to figure out how to differentiate yourself, and you've differentiated yourself in many, many ways, and your business has expanded greatly from that. And and clearly, one would say that when you've got something more to offer people besides just the business you're trying to sell, that people know that and understand that, and relationships and doing good uh, uh, good things come when you uh, you do well when you do good. Love it. That's that should be the that should be the new tagline. You do well when you do good. Do um, well when you do good. Yeah. So you know what? Forget the real estate. Let's get back to the Steve Bram. Where it all started. You grew up at West Coast, L.A. I grew up in Brentwood. I grew up about uh, a ten minute walk from where your office is. Uh, well, I I, I'm now sitting in Beverly Hills. I'm I'm, okay. uh, I'm not slumming it in uh, Brentwood anymore. Where your office used to be, right? But yes, I grew well, up in where I, when I was five or six years see, old. Grew up in Brentwood, went to school in L.A., uh, 
Where'd you go to high school? Remind me. Did you go to LA? Went to LA public schools. I went to, uh, believe it or not, I was one of those, you know, I feel like went to the local, uh, the local, the local pre pre preschool around the block in the park, the local elementary school, junior high and high school, Pally high. Oh, you went to Pally high. Pally high Palisades. Famous school. I ended up being senior class president of the school. I went to Pally High, the Pally Dolphins, my nemesis at University High, but some of my best friends, uh, of lifelong friends, all went to Pally. I'm still brokenhearted. They swept us in baseball my junior year, but we swept them senior year, so I got payback. All right, so you went there. Where did you end up going to, uh, to college? College, I went to Claremont Men's College, which is now called Claremont McKenna. Then I got the bug to get involved in the hotel field. So everybody finds it kind of cool. I dropped out of school between my freshman and sophomore year. I really took a year's leave of absence, but, but you could say I dropped out, but I really didn't drop out. It was a leave. And I went and was a ski bum for a year between my freshman and sophomore year. Oh, that's awesome. So I, went, I went to Park City, Utah, and I was the assistant manager of a hotel. Did all kinds of things in the hotel business there. I ran the front desk, ran the bar, ran the maintenance department. It was a smaller hotel. Uh, I never knew this. A lot. How did you never tell me this? What hotel was it? It's a nothing hotel. It was an 80-room hotel called the Sebon, right on the slopes in Park City, Utah in 1975. Okay, well, I might have been there. You were not there. So... (laughs) Well, let me so tell you something. Funny enough, I was going to say that people in people you know enjoy to hear that. Gee, why would a academic good student drop out for a year? The idea was, I was smart enough to understand that if I uh, wanted to take a year being a speed bum after I graduated from college, that would not be a great time because that's when you're most primed for that great job. I decided I'd do it then. So finishing, finishing the school thing, decided I really did like the hotel business, transferred to Cornell Hotel School, and, and ended up uh, transferring, spent two years at Cornell Hotel School, ended up graduating number one in the class. Uh, uh, then, I, then I left there, took uh, two years and worked in the hotel business for Hyatt Hotels, and then went and got a finance degree from the Wharton School of Finance, assuming that I would be a financier of hotels. Where's that? Never heard of it. Yeah. Somewhere on the East Coast, like University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. 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 Wow. So wait, let me on, let me on rewind this a little bit. When you took that year off, was it because I'm a young guy, I want to ski and have a good time? And you fell into a job at a hotel? Or you were already somehow thinking about, I like, I'm into this hotel leisure business? Or so the answer is that what you think i just let things go the way they go i had a business plan in my mind that i wanted to get some hands-on hotel experience and see if it was a business i liked and so i decided to uh, look for jobs and i actually uh, took a greyhound bus and went to vale and aspen and park city utah and knocked on doors looking for jobs and got three or four job offers and then ultimately picked the one in Park City, Utah. You couldn't go wrong with those locations. So tell me, parents, what were they uh, saying to you at this point when you're... 
Oh my God, he's going to drop out of school. He's never going to get his degree. What's going on? They said, you can't do this. It's not the right thing to do. And my professors I I I was close with said to my parents, you don't know your son. You think he's going to not finish his degree and probably get advanced degrees? He's just taking a break. Give him a break and let him do that. My professors convinced my parents it was the okay thing to do. And just to show you how correct they were, when I worked in Park City, Utah, after about three or four weeks there, I was so bored with the people I was hanging around with that I went and enrolled in uh, uh, um, uh, extension classes at the University of Utah. So I could not stand being out of school. Even as a even as a ski, even as a ski bum. So you remind me the name of the big bowls in the back of Park City. Those, there's a couple big bowls, and there's a- oh, they were they were great. That was before Deer Valley was even built. Uh, was the Rattler one of the runs that the I don't remember I the can't name remember either. I've been there. I- Mammoth is where I ski mostly now. Hey, but, were your uh, were your parents in real estate business, Steve? Uh they were. What what were, were they doing? So it's kind of the family business. So my granddad, who's long passed away, was a single family tract developer, and he built probably 5,000 homes over his career. One of the brand names was Sunkissed Homes. So I was lucky enough to be in that business. I remember going to his office and seeing on the wall when they had checks, paper checks, that they had about a hundred different bank accounts and they had a little shelf for each che- each checkbook, each check. That's right, boom, 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 because every little track had its own little company name. Tracks were LA or Southern California? Or- this was mostly in LA, Huntington Beach, Oxnard, Ventura, San Diego, and they were building tracks of, you know, 50 homes. And that's in the days when when homes sold for fifty grand, and the contra the builder of the homes took back paper as well when they sold the homes. So they'd sell a home VA, you'd put like three per three percent down. The government the government would insure the loans, and the developer, my granddad, would take back the paper, and then he'd secure it with bank with bank lines. So you have you come from a line of uh, complex and savvy real estate developers, financers, etc. And and your dad was in the real estate business too. My my dad worked with my with granddad in the business, but my dad's love was playing in bands, and that's the only thing he really liked to do was music. But he dad. did some pretty good. He did some pretty good real estate deals as well. Did well. Yeah, you know, my dad is a full time jazz musician, and yeah, you know. Gave it up, gave it up because his parents said, you can't be a touring musician. And he went, ended up at dental school and became an endodontist and then gave that up. And now he's full time in the back of his house playing bebop. You know, he's been doing that for 50 years. Your dad does. Yeah. And Doc, I will, Dr. Jack Brown. And I will. Uh, <laughs> the Beverly Hills uh, endodontist is a jazz man uh, in disguise. <laughs> well, music, I'll uh, digress for a second if I, if I can. My son, I have a son, we have a son named Ben Bram, and he was always into, you know, music as well since he was quite young. Uh, He never found a song or an instrument that he didn't love. 
Um, and so when he was younger, he'd play lots of instruments. When he was in junior high and high school, he was in lots of bands at Harvard. Westlake, he, he led the jazz band. He was a, uh, he was a director of some of their shows, their musical shows. Uh, Edinburgh, he led one, one or two of their shows in Edinburgh. He went to USC and was in their acapella program and was a music, ma music major at USC. But what's in, what's, and people say, where did he get that gene from? And the answer is he got that gene from my dad. And I recall when he was 13, 14, going and sitting in, in uh, 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 jazz band sessions with my dad and a bunch of old guys playing his trumpet and just, you know, doing improv with them. And it's done him well because he led the USC's top acapella group as their coach to win the worldwide number one competition two years in a row for the acapella collegiate competition. So he led them to win that. And then he ended up working on a TV show that did acapella stuff as one of their directors. And he ended up founding a group that's become a worldwide phenomenon called Pentatonics, which is an you know, a group, acapella wow. group. And he is there producer, arranger, uh, and co-founder, and they've won Grammy Awards for what they do, and he continues to do that and other groups as well. So, you know, music can be a good business if you're lucky. Yeah, I mean, it was my first business. But, you know, my whole family, my both, both grandfathers had bands, jazz, and big swing, and my dad, and, you know, most of my family were painters and artists and writers. My Aunt Charlotte's a writer, my Jack, Uncle Jackson. I somehow got into sports and got derailed from, from, from being a musician. But I went into the music business. That was my first career before real estate. So I digress. That's a little tangent. So let's get back to your story. So at what point, obviously, you were a very driven young guy. You went and learned the hotel business, got some great experience. You grew up in a real estate family. Uh, but what put you on the path to what led you to doing what you're doing now, which is high-level financing for commercial real estate well sometimes you just fall into you just fall into things and uh you plan but it's never quite right i'm not sure if i told you the story when i graduated from wharton business school i came to la i was working for a finance company just doing consulting uh underwriting and consulting and i was at a UCLA extension class in advanced tax work. And uh, some guys in the class came up to me and said, uh, we'd like you to work for us. You seem like a smart guy. And I said, what do you guys do? And they said, mortgage, bro mortgage brokerage. And I said, what the hell is mortgage brokerage? I've never heard of that. They didn't teach that at Wharton Business School. That wasn't at Wharton first, fresh, you know, first year. They did not have a class and did not have a class in that. So, so um, I said, not in, not interested. I love my uh, job, but uh, I saw them every week at the class, and finally they convinced me to go interview for the job. And I ultimately took the job working at this company in mortgage brokerage. Had no idea really what that meant. I worked for a few guys there for a couple of months, and those guys, after a few months, told me that they were going to go leave and work at Bear Stearns. And 
the big guy at the end of the hall whose name was on the door named George Smith heard that I was going to leave and he had seen me around. I had no idea who he was, really didn't know, but he asked me to talk to him and said, you know what, I hear you're going to leave with these other guys and go to Bear Stearns. I want you to work for me. So, um, so that's uh, how it happened. So I just connection. decided to work for George. And, you know, the thing that I tell people is work with the best guy that you can and just carry their bags and learn by osmosis from him. So for three or four years, I underwrote his deals. I carried his bags. I was in the room and I learned what he does. And, you know, after a while, you pick it up no matter how dumb you might be absolutely which is another huge lesson and theme i mean it's the, the mentorship model but you have to be willing as the mentee to do the work and grind it out and you know i did a lot of that as well just shadowing david offer and larry young and other people in the business for and dave ravis and just really soaking it up and you did the same thing for those people who may be uh, a younger generation and may not know of george smith can you give us uh, let people know. I mean, obviously, you know he's he's a legend okay. in real estate. But a quick well, a quick uh, snapshot to who he is. So George uh, George Smith's name was on the door of our firm. It still is the name on our door. George, interesting. George was a uh, <clears throat> Harvard Business School Harvard engineer and business school, and he was working for a developer. Many many years ago, and they were getting financing from Sonnenblick Goldman. And the Sonnenblick Goldman guys were making these big fees. And he said, I'm working all these long hours, and they're making these big fees. I'm in the wrong business. I need to be in a commission-driven business. Yeah, all of you who are listening, you understand exactly what I'm saying here. So George said, okay, I'll work for So he left working for the de developer and he went and he joined Sonnenblick Goldman, earning no income, but as a commission guy, the harder you work, the more you make. And George was a very smart guy. George was very charismatic, loved to tell jokes, got people's interest and excitement. And he was really smart on figuring out how to do deals. And so um, um, that's the, George Smith, who for years and years, he spoke all around town. People really liked him. Uh, George had a, a child with a uh, terrible disease, childhood disease, and started to fundraise for trying to find a cure for that disease. And we ran a big luncheon for about 12 years in a row where we had up to 12 Hundred people, investment bankers flew in from New York, Amazing. bankers from LA and all over. They'd buy a table of 10 to support it. And it also built the, um, uh, uh, the view of the firm. People got to know the firm. Certainly that's not why it was done. It was done to raise funds for the nonprofit that tried to cure that terrible disease that she had. All right, so that gives us a good entree, a good breakdown of how it started and uh, what an incredible experience you had working under uh, George Smith. So you're still there. Uh, tell us what, uh, you know, what the business looks like now, today, 2022. What does the firm look like? What does your business look like? Uh, are you focused still on mostly brokering deals or are you also focused on managing humans in the company and managing people 
a little of both. Why don't you kind of break down what today, what your business looks like today? Uh, will do. So um, my business is I am officially the president of the firm because nobody else really wanted to take that job and do it. <clears throat> I don't get paid for it, but I've been the president for 20 years or so of the firm. Uh, and we've got a chief operating officer that keeps the trains running, keeps the lights on. And we've had different junior partners who have taken different roles to manage different aspects of the day to day of the firm. Uh, I also do deals and I do not get paid for being president of the firm. I only get paid when I close deals. Okay. Um, and the firm has 50 guys, roughly guys and gals. We've got eight partners and we've got six or seven brokers who are not partners yet in the firm, but we hope that everybody will become a partner in the firm. And each of these brokerage teams has one or two or three or four or sometimes five juniors that work on the team to uh, process the deals, or pitch the deals, write up the deals. Uh, and the business, my role in the business is, again, just to make sure that we continue to operate. Strategy, we set a bit, you know, new directions we set, but really each of the teams works on their own deals. Yeah. And so it's really a team model from what I've always known and what you've just said, that you'll have senior and junior people working on deals. So even uh, someone who's more inexperienced or junior, they're getting exposure, they're learning by being on a team with more senior people. Right. And that's the mentor, mentee, kind of the mentor, mentee role. But this is on teams here. And there's nothing we like more than for those junior people after three or four or five years to say, I don't need to be on a team anymore. I'm going to try to bring in my own deals at the firm and set up my own team ultimately. And that's a win for us because we encourage younger people to grow and then to do their own do their own thing. Can you now get more specific and drill down a little bit and give us some examples of deals that you guys have worked on that may be of interest, whether it's hotels or retail or our part? I know you do a lot of different. Anything that comes to mind that you could kind of give us a breakdown of what the deal was and what your role was in it? You want me to bore you on deals? We'll be here all day. For Um, me, it's the best. I would love to be here all day talking deals. This is the deal after all. This is the deal. For us so, sick deal junkies, we love it. <laughs> so people don't come to us for a very simple deal very often. They come to us for more difficult deals. Uh, and we tend to do structured deals, more difficult more deal, more difficult structured deals. Uh, but we also do basic deals as well. So a basic deal is a apartment house that's being done with Fannie Mae. Freddie Mac or HUD, so we are we arrange we arrange those and we share and we share fees with our correspondent relationships. And what we do on those deals is somebody's got an apartment house, and you know we're the advocate for the owner of the property. We're the one that can tell them that you can push this and you can underwrite it that way, and you can adjust this and you can adjust that. And these are the things you can do to maximize your return on the deal we also can get multiple quotes and make it such that the lenders have to compete for the deals 
We also get apartment financing from a full array of local banks that are doing recourse and non-recourse five to 10 year fixed rate or floating rate financing. So those are kind of the easy meat and potato kind of deals we're doing for loans from 5 million to 20 million or so. Everyday uh, crank it out deals. The everyday crank it up type of type of deals. But, um, you know, then you get into the more interesting structured deals. Those might be bridge loans, where you have a guy who's buying an older apartment house and he's going to rehab it and roll rents in Phoenix, Tucson, Florida, Texas, things of Both that, markets. things of that sort. We've got, you know, a client uh, that we've done 12 deals for him. Well, and 12 deals for them over the last three or four years, and they've bought the deals, rehabbed, and sold them. Their investors have made about 25% IRRs, and the general partners have made about 45% IRRs on those deals. And, and, on, and on those, you'd say, where do you find a <clears throat> bridge lender? Where do you find these guys that are going to give you 80% of your purchase price and 100% of your rehab costs at, at a 5.5% rate, non-recourse, with one point fee in and maybe a half a point fee out. So, you know, finding that deal, closing that deal is not easy. Uh, so, so that might be one of the kind of the cool one of kind of the cool things that we've done. A client that I've worked with, we've done over a billion dollars of financing for this retail developer. His typical deals are twenty to fifty, and some of them are sixty, seventy million. And in this case, you know, it starts out that he's buying, you know, he's buying distressed three large retail properties, not grocery anchored typically. And they're more difficult deals. They're not grocery anchored. They start out as bridge loans because um, because they need work to be done. The income's not quite there. They spend a year or two doing some upgrades, leasing it out. Then we put a fixed rate loan on it. Maybe there's some mezzanine attached to that. Maybe there's not. Um, there are hotel deals that the firm's done. We did a $400 million uh, hotel construction loan in Portland lately for a combination of the Ritz, Carlton, and condos. We did a uh, $200 million uh, to be built resort in La Quinta. We did a 3,000 acre, $35 million loan on a historic closed down resort in Napa that's being. Uh, uh, built out as a new six-star resort, and the vineyards are going to get built out. So, very. What resort new, is? Do we have? Does that have someone associated with it? Or? It's got. It's got a. It's got two flags that are trying to compete for that. Mandarin and Six Senses are looking at best that. Of the best of the best. <laughs> the best of the best of the best, and those kinds of hotels sell for two to three million dollars a room. A key end of the day. It's crazy, and the rates are fifteen hundred dollars or more per night. So those are yeah. unique kind of deals. Um, I'm going to put a pause and put a pin on this. But to 
I told you I could keep talking on those. Well, Go ahead. So let's just take an example. You don't have to give too many specifics, but a hotel deal like you're talking about in Napa, for instance, uh, what is the typical amount of time from when a when a client of yours says, okay, I'm looking into getting financing to when it funds these things taking several months. So sometimes we'll do a deal in two weeks where someone says, I've got an opportunity to buy something quick close. I need it to close in two weeks. Can you find me a deal? It's going to be more expensive. It's going to be a lender that doesn't require appraisals and reports. And we do those every once in a while. But most deals, uh, you know, a deal can get done start to finish in three months, maybe two and a half to three months. Uh, but I'd say that more than half of the deals take six months. Uh, you know, we've got a we've got a, a 300 unit apartment house that we're working on in uh, the Coachella. Valley, and they brought us the deal. They own the they own the land, free and clear. They brought us the deal. We underwrote the deal. It did not underwrite that well. They then said we got to go back and redo the plans. They spent three or four months to redo the plans and recost it up. They did that. Then they came back again. Still didn't like it. Now they're going and getting certain things approved to change it. They're trying to get some grants. So pro deals like that might take quite a long time. We had a. 200 unit apartment house in Woodland Hills that they came to us, we got the deal done, and then they found out there was an issue with the easement that took three months to solve. So here this deal just sat, all set to uh, go, all set to go, but uh, the easement sat there and they had to get it solved before they could fund the loan. The lender was able to wait. So what I'm hearing is that good majority of the deals that are not too complicated are in that three to six month zone. You can close something in 10 days or two weeks uh, when you need to. And sometimes there's some hair and some more complexities and it could drag on and on and on. Uh, What's the longest it's ever taken for you to start to finish? Has there been stuff that's taken years? Some of my partners have had deals that took 18 months. I think the long term is probably... Is probably about a about a year, but you know we encourage that. We tell a guy if he's got a deal that he's working on, we say bring us the deal up front. Let us review the deal. Give let us be your partner. Let us consult with you on how to get this deal done, and let us raise issues early early on in the deal because we know what lenders are not going to like about a deal. We know if the numbers don't work. So let us look at the deal to start with and underwrite it, and then you'll go back and uh, continue to fix the deal, formulate the deal. So that's not a bad thing. Right, I don't, I don't want to bore, uh, bore everyone with uh, our deal junkie talk. I could talk to you all night, every night about deals. There's so many stories. So I want to get into some of your um, personal stuff because uh, you are uh, – in my definition, a, a very successful person. And forget about business and financials. I'm talking about someone that seems to be grounded, down-to-earth, authentic, disciplined, hardworking, gives back, all that kind of good stuff that we all aim to be. So uh, to get behind, to be that person, I'd love to understand, and it's, a, it's something I ask people in your position, what does a typical day look like? 
And let's start with the morning. Are you getting up super early or what does that first hour or two look like? And then I will we'll kind of progress what a typical day looks like from there. I'll tell you what a day looks like. And I work way too hard. You can ask my wife about that. Typical days, I maybe get up at 7 o'clock, 7.37. I tend to, I tend to stay, up, stay up late. Uh, you know, I get up, I might sit at my desk for an hour or so around eight, around eight o'clock. I try every day to swim in our pool in the backyard, lap pool, which I built. So I swim 15, 20, half hour, 40 minutes, have a little bit of breakfast. Don't drink coffee. I've, uh, uh, I'm enjoying right now grapefruit juice. Uh, I, I took about a hundred grapefruits off a tree in Palm Springs. And I've got them all stored in the fridge, so I have two grapefruits every two grapefruits every day. Oh, those Palm Springs grapefruits are like oh, so good. So good. They're so good. Uh, and then I work, and I'll tell you, the last two and a half years, I've been working at home. Uh, I've got a beautiful office. We've got fourteen thousand square feet. My office pretty much sits empty through COVID because I've got a whole office arrangement at home, like many of we many of us do um uh and uh, then i tend to you know after supper i tend to come back to my desk and work from eight to ten at night uh unfortunately i burned the candle at both ends uh but that's what my day looks like a lot of hours during the day i'd say that currently i probably spend no more than half of my day on work and the other half of my day spent on philanthropy or my personal invest my personal investments on the personal investment side i'm general partner in probably 12 to 14 deals generally with partners but they take time uh i'm obviously like like most of us are i'm invested in a lot of deals as an lp maybe 50 deals as an lp but there's nothing to do there but on the co-GP side, there's work to do to keep an eye on that. So that takes time. But the philanthropy is what I enjoy most. And I probably spend 40% of my day on that. And, um, you know, something I always that always struggle. First of all, no coffee. How do you have the energy? It's just you're wired and you're exercise and, you know, that, that's good for you. I'm wired. I don't drink coffee. And if I do, I drink decaf. If I have a cup of coffee once in a while, just for the taste, but you yeah. know, you once got, a month, I might have a cup. You got the natural juice. Well, the swimming can get, it gets you strong. It gets you strong. So yeah, one thing I always noticed about you, at least, you know, this is 15 years ago or more or so, but you do a lot of business uh, after out of office sort of networking. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know you call it social, you call it networking. Uh, a lot, a lot of it, or some of it's philanthropy. Some of it's probably just getting out there. But are you still actively out there? Uh, you know, maybe because COVID it shut down. But I, I, I kind of recall that you were always going out. You were always out and about in the evenings at, at different. Well, places. let me answer that and say that I really enjoy net work. I really enjoy networking. I enjoy to go into a. I enjoy to go into a room. So let let me just talk about that for a drop. Net working you know i've told our staff when we go to an event you know the company pays for the event of course that's the way it works but i've said to them that if i see them talking to 
one of our other brokers at an event for more than one minute, I am not paying for their event fee. I've said, you're not going to the event to talk to people who you know. You're going to the event to talk to people you don't know. I've said to them, once you collect 10 business cards, then you can play. But you've got to go in there and work the room. And I've actually given classes to them about how to uh, remove yourself from a discussion with someone that seems to be a waste of a waste of time. You know, not being rude here, but you go to a networking event to meet people that can be productive for your business. And you start to talk to somebody and you find out that there's going to be no benefit to you from that. You know, stop talking to them. You've got an hour to network and you want to make the most of that. So those are things that I've taught our group. When I walk into a room, my wife accuses me of running for mayor. Because she says you like work the room, you wander around the room, you're shaking hands with people, you're saying hello to people, you're able to come up to people you don't know. Because you're able to come up to people you don't know and say something to them and just break the ice there. And it's something that I do. I don't mind that. Have um, you always been outgoing in that way? I mean, socially, always? Is it a natural thing for you? Because that's not such an easy well, thing to go in a room with strangers. And- I don't know, except that I guess I was president of my 12th grade class. So I guess I have been that way for a long time. Taking hands and kissing babies. since high Taking school. hands and kissing babies. And it's interesting because, I- as you know, I... Of that rule that's okay. As you know, I stutter a bit when I speak, and you know, I've been able to overcome it, overcome the fear of speaking to people, overcome the fear of speaking in large groups. Stutter sometimes. I tell people I stutter sometimes. Sorry, sorry about it. You just didn't have to hear me say something twice. And they laugh, and that's the way that goes. Yeah, well, you seem to do a lot of speaking. Don't you do a lot of panels and speaking often? No, I used to. COVID, of course, that shut down, and I've been enjoying just kind of being home. I love but, I love that 10-card rule. If you're going to be there, you want us to pay for it. Don't talk to your uh, friend brokers. Go meet people and get engaged and impl- politely disengage. The art of polite disengagement is important. You got an yeah. hour to focus, and you may find a deal or a relationship that turns into something. Uh, that's really important. I tell people and when you're talking to somebody, it's hard, but focus on the person you're talking to. Don't be looking around at who you're going to talk to next because, pe- you know, people can tell. Um, and the other contact networking, whatnot that I've done has always been very involved in philanthropic circles, even when I can't afford to do that. I'm Jewish. You and I met through the Jewish networks in town. They're Catholic networks, they're nonprofit networks, they're homeless networks, they're all kinds of networks that do good. And, you know, when I got in the business 38 years ago, George said, you know, you should get involved in philanthropy and you might go to this thing. And I went to this thing and this thing grew into the next thing and the next thing. And when you go to these philanthropy things, it's hard to meet people unless you start to get actually involved. You volunteer to be on a committee or to organize things or to be a program director or do this or that. And you just show up every day. And you find that the people that are 
involved in the philanthropy that you support or people that you want to do business with and work with. It's a good thing. That's it. I mean, follow, uh, follow your passion and philanthropy and what you're interested in, and you'll be aligned with people that, you know, like-minded that could lead to business because you're like-minded people you want to be in business with. So talk to me now about your philanthropy, uh, philanthropy now, what are, what are your, what are you supporting? What are you passionate about uh, on that side? So we can hear a little bit about what's going on on, in that part of your life. Uh, will do. Uh, so the big time suck right now is that I'm actually president of my Jewish temple. So I've been on their board for a long time. I have been at this temple for 50 years. I was bar mitzvah there 52 years ago. Uh, I've been on their financial oversight committee. So I was asked to be president of the temple. It's a temple that's got 1,600 family, 1,600 families, about 4,000 uh, members. It's got a school with almost 500 kids, uh, grades K through six. So that's been really fun. And I'm halfway through my term there. Uh, and working with the staff, clergy staff, and the administrative staff to make sure that that congregation stays on a straight path has really been fun. What and getting to know what's, what's that? that? What temple? It's, it's called Stephen Wise oh, Temple. Stephen Wise. I had my yeah. bar mitzvah at Stephen Wise. <laughs> <laughs> Better lamb. That's right. Good man. So, yeah. so that's one thing that that I I do. Uh, I've been involved with the Jewish Federation of LA for a long time. That's how you and I met. I was chairman of their real estate and construction division for a few years, and that allowed me to access and get to know a lot of folks there. I co-chaired with my wife one or two of their large banquets that they had. Uh, so that was a that was a and continues to be a great networking source and just fun if a few deals come from it you don't look for the deals you look to give your time and be involved and if there are a few people that you can do business with there that's great uh, i helped uh i helped co-found the real estate division of jewish national fund in la with a gentleman named david Rosenthal, and uh, we built that group up for three or four years. They met in my office every six weeks. I stepped back from that now because my plate's full. Um, so those are some of the ones that are taking the most the most amount of time. There are five or six other organizations I'm also involved with. Spending hours a week, block of time on this, and you have for a long time. Forty percent of my time is on this stuff. Forty percent. What would you say? How about 20 years ago, what percent of your time? 15. Right, so 20, you've always 15, had a lot of, yeah. you've, already, you've always dedicated a lot of time. If Funny. you devote your energy to it, you do it, and you have to enjoy the work. You have to have believe to. in, you have to believe in the cause and believe in what you're trying to do here. A really good lesson, if you're going to get involved with groups and charities, find something you're really passionate about and interested in and people you like and because and get involved because that's you want to get involved and make the most of it and you know at the end at the end of the day when your days are up and you look back 
you know, your uh, 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 whatever you believe in, if you believe in God or you don't, going to look back and say, is it he who made the most money at the end of the day or he who made the biggest difference in the world? Is it going to be he who had the biggest house, the biggest car and the most amount of toys and boats and planes? My belief is that you don't. My belief is that, you know, you don't need to overspend on your own on your own life and you want to try to make a difference you know, around you. I love uh, my wife still can't get me to buy a nicer car, but I really don't care. My Prius has been just fine. Uh, you're getting a lot of mileage out. It's funny. I think speaking of Jewish Federation, I think I'm having lunch with John Monkarsh today. Today? Maybe it's next. But uh, yeah, another great mentor of mine like you and uh, very involved with, with uh, philanthropy. So before we part, any other wisdom, words of advice uh, from, you know, younger brokers coming up, younger business people, uh, you know, things you wish you would have known then that you know now, you know, people that are deep in the grind, anything you want to, you've dropped a lot of wisdom already, but if there's anything that comes to mind that... Well, one of the things that I say is that no matter what you're doing during the workday, no matter what you're involved in, if your wife calls, you answer the phone. <laughs> no matter what. Now, unless you have a wife who calls multiple times during the day to ask you little dumb things like, where did you leave the this or that? But I've got a wife who calls me every once in a while. Uh, and take the call. You, Always take the call, wife or kids, always. And I've, and I've been on many very big business calls where I've said, I have to excuse myself, my wife's on the other line, and I've never had anybody complain about that. Uh, so that's one piece Love of it there. Um, you know, try to turn off the phone every once in a while. I'm not too good at that. I don't let the phone interrupt personal time with wife and kids kind of hard to do, but those are important things to do. You know, vacations, take lots of vacations, get exercise. Um, uh, and uh, I also, you know, I've got guys who work for me and our business is a very stressful business. There's a lot of cash at stake. You know, you're doing a 40 or 50 or 80, $100 million loan, things can go wrong. I've had guys people who work with me that have come in distraught because something's going wrong on the deal and they don't know what to do. And they're just like torn apart by it. Yeah. And I've said to them, is anybody going to die if this deal doesn't close? Is anybody going to be hurt or unhealthy? I say, it's just a deal and life will go on. So don't let it stress you out. And people say, how can you be so calm in the business that you're in, which is such a high stakes business? And I say, it's because nobody's going to die from something we do. You know, I, if I was a doctor, I might be saying something else. But, but well these said. are our main business, generally in my business, which is financing high-end real estate, is that uh, we're making rich people richer. We're yeah. taking care of rich people. They want it done right. They want it done well. They deserve that. They're paying us a good fee. But stuff happens out of our control and don't get crazy about that. So, so those are just a few thoughts. Yeah, I want to just 
play that last two minutes over and over to everyone I know in real estate, including myself, because, you know, no one is dying. And that's something I, I've learned I th- maybe from you. But uh, you got to in those moments and things get heated and the pressures are like nobody's dying. No one's sick. I'm healthy. Everyone's healthy. Let's keep things in perspective. We're not in a battlefield and no one's got a disease. That's uh, you know. right. And oftentimes clients are very uptight about the things that I say to them. You know, things don't always go just right. And they yell and they scream. And I say, I'm sorry. This is the way it is. And I say, you know, I'll call you tomorrow. Yeah. Sleep on it overnight. I say some of the things that I just said uh, uh, in a stressful business. And, you know, we get them worked out. Clients come back. Yeah, because they you know everyone's everyone's pulling from the same rope and understands that you know they come to people like you and me trust us and know it's going to put them always in the best position. It may not always be the perfect position, but we do our best to to make things uh, pleasurable and as successful an outcome as possible. And that's all you can do. And on those on those notes, Danny, I'm so proud of having. Spent time with you years back, and I, every time I see oh, things you. that you're doing, I'm thrilled. And all, even this podcast here uh, goes above and beyond to differentiate yourself from everybody else out there showing you taking the extra effort. And I know that you put that extra effort in every deal and every client you work with. And I'm sure that podcasts like this indicate to your prospective clients out there that you're going to go the extra mile for them. So I'm thrilled to be a part of this. I'm thrilled to have had some relationship with you and and maybe had some little inkling of who you've become. Uh, And I'm thrilled to have been on your podcast. So thank you. Uh, That's so kind. I owe it all to you, Steve. Thank you. I love having you here. Good to see you. Hopefully at some point we'll get you out of your home office and have a lunch or breakfast and would love to see you. But uh, all the best to you and your family. Thanks for sharing all these nuggets with us, man. That's Thank you. Been a joy. Episode over and over. No, no, no. If you can learn a few things, and uh, those of you on the air here listening, if you've got questions about things, feel free to call or email me. You know, I say to people, you don't have to have a deal to talk to us. You can have a question to talk to us. You can be thinking about buying something. You can be just wondering how would something work in the commercial finance world. So we're accessible, either myself or the guys who work for me on my team. So um, our contact info, I'm sure, will be tied in here somewhere. Put it in the show notes. And I'm going to have all a lot of questions, Steve, lots of questions. But it will all be in the show notes. Reach out to us Anytime, we love to talk to people and give advice and consulting for free. Steve, you are a mensch of mensches. I love you. Good to see you. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing some time with us today, and I'll see you soon. Bye.